tell you a story. The first story my father told me and the first story that I told each of you. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing but the silence of an infinite darkness. But the breath of the Creator fluttered against the face of the void, whispering, let there be light. And light was, and it was good, the first day. And so for the ten generations since Adam's sin has walked within us. Brother against brother. Nation against nation. Man against creation. We murdered each other. We broke the world. We did this. Man did this. Everything that was beautiful. Everything that was good. We shattered. Now, it begins again. Noah, the first hero of mankind. The first Bible hero that we will look at. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God creates the heavens, the earth, the waters, all the fish and the sea, all the birds of the air, all the animals on the earth. And he says they are good. They're good. They're so good. He looks at man and woman. He says, you are very good. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. The world is completely corrupt. In six chapters, the very first six chapters of the Bible, you go from it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good in my image to it is completely and 100% corrupt. We have to start over. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we have a God for do-overs. I need a do-over. Maybe you've needed a do-over or two in your life. The world is in need of second chances. Noah is the first of those second chances. And if... Let me, let me just sort of give you a, a little frame here very quickly. You have sermon notes if you'd like to follow along. They may prove helpful to you today. Um, but first of all, let me say this, that the time of Genesis 1 to 11 is unlike any other in literature. It's unlike anything else that we've ever known. There is Abraham and, and all of our Jewish ancestry and Christian ancestry from Genesis 12 forward. But until then, it's a whole other deal. It's just a different deal. And scholars have spent their lives, their entire lives, trying to figure out what to do with these stories, these etiologies that say, how did the world come to be and what does it mean and who is God and what are we supposed to understand from these stories, Genesis 1 through 11. These are stories that, uh, like on the, on the video of Noah, were told around a campfire, family to family, generation to generation, about how they came to be and who they were and what it meant to be God's people. But friends, it was unlike any other And even the very best of people just don't know what to do with this. It leaves us with more questions than answers, quite frankly. For example, the ancestors... Wow, I'm going to get this yet. The ancestors from Adam to Noah, they would live nearly 1,000 years to 777 years. Is that the same as today? No, this is a very different time. It's a different sort of understanding of what's going on. And the scripture says it like this. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God... Well, hold on, that's new, right? What, what is that? What are the sons of God? What is this like? It, it's much like a Marvel movie where, like Wonder Woman. I went to go see that this week with my wife, and, and we went together. 
And, and you know, these are gods and goddesses and mortals. And how do they interact and what goes on with that? And, and the sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves, mortal wives of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in mortals forever. They are flesh. And rather than living almost a thousand days, their days shall be 120 years. No more are we going to have somebody live in 600, 700, 800, 900 years like you see in this Genesis 1, 2, 11. No, no, no. And so from that time, 3000 BC to 2017 AD, more more than 5,000 years, no one on the planet has lived more than 120 years except for Jean. Jean Calmet of France uh, died in 1997 at the ripe old age of 122. Now, depending on your religious background, I've completely blown your mind and you're ready to walk out. Uh, no, no, no. Oh, I don't believe in God anymore. Jean lived at 122. Uh, the Bible says 120 in Genesis 6. She's 122. I'm out. Well, friends, that's no faith at all. Our faith, Andy and I were talking about this through the week as, as we were preparing to preach. He over at one church and, and me here. And here's the thing. Our faith is not some flimsy brick wall where if you pull out one little detail in one chapter of 66 books, the whole thing falls. No. No, 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 no. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect representation of God in the world. It is in his life that we view all the rest of the scripture. And so we don't worry about Jean. But I will tell you this. She is some supernatural stuff. Because here, I went ahead and read. If you, can, you can read about this, by the way. You can Google it, New York Times article. It's really interesting. Because some of the smartest people on the planet find that Jean is actually an outlier. She dies at 122, that's true, but researchers doubt that we will ever see the likes of her again. Not before and not after. That's why they wrote the story about her. That there is a ceiling to mortals. From now on, researchers say that the human limit is 115. 115. So all of you who are thinking you're going to like hang out at 130, just forget it, you're not. We all die. 115 is the limit. University of Illinois at Chicago, they've been arguing this for more than 25 years, that there is a limit to humanity. A child born in the United States in 1900, for example, had an average life expectancy of 50 years. Today, it's up to 79. Um, In 1968, the oldest person who had ever lived was 111. And by the 90s, it had gotten to 115, but then it stopped, other than Jean. Ms. Calmet is, is something. We don't know her story completely, but it's interesting. And so what they find is not only is she an outlier, but they did this research. This blows my mind. They say you would need 10,000 worlds like the earth to have even one chance that there would be one human who could become 125 years old. Given the data, scientists predict the future will look a lot like the present, that we will never again see someone pass 115. I think that's interesting. That an old, old story told around the campfire that says God says mortals will not live more than 120 has been true for 5,000 years except for this lady. Isn't that interesting? That's pretty interesting. So um, I'll give God the gene factor. I don't know about you. But that, you know, that's that's not my, that's not where I'm hanging out. My my faith is not completely destroyed because of one sweet old lady. Although I got to tell you, I don't think the last two years were that great. I'm just saying. So when Jesus... And God, because Jesus is there with God in the beginning, according to the Gospel of John. When they're creating humanity, the Hebrew word is nephesh, okay? Which means a bundle of appetites. My Old Testament professor, Dr. Power, who gave his life to these stories, says that a nephesh looks like this. Baby bird, mouth wide open. Feed me, feed me, feed me, more information, more food, more this, more that. I want, I want, I want. And so when God made Adam and Eve, this is what he made. A little person. Any of y'all had a two-year-old? You know what I'm talking about. 
all on, all the time. I want, I want, I want. Feed me, feed me. I want this, I want that. I, you know, a little experiment. We're dropping stuff, doing this. Just all appetite. So the word is nephesh. Will you say that with me? The word is what? Nephesh. It's a little bundle of appetites. On the other hand, there are two words that the Bible uses for God. One is Yahweh. Say Yahweh with me. Yahweh. The other is Elohim. Say, yeah, say Elohim with me. Elohim. And so Elohim is the Hebrew name used for God alongside Yahweh. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So if you go back to Genesis 6, what you find are Nephilim. Does that sound familiar? See, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans, there it is again, right? Divine with mortals who bore children to them, semi-divine. These were the heroes, heroes, the Bible says of old, warriors of renown, much like you would see in a superhero movie. These people were stronger, faster, better, smarter, part God, part human. Again, this is all Genesis 1 to 11. Okay? So this Nephilim combines Nephish that we talked about and Elohim. And they're semi-divine beings known as heroes in those first parts of the Bible. Again, a different sort of time, right? Not, not what you would think um, hanging out at Walmart these days on Danforth. So what happens in the story, God creates the world and it's good. However, there's been this breach, this boundary between heaven and earth. These Nephilim, these part human, part gods, are now roaming around the earth with intensified capacities for violence. It was a very interesting, sort of mind-disturbing story. And again, it raises more questions than answers. What does it mean for there to be supernatural beings that come to earth and mix with mortals and have offspring? What? That's in the Bible. So... With all of this craziness going on, what happens? We have the first savior, Noah. His very name means comfort, relief, rest. So if you're hearing the story around the campfire and the world is as bad as it's ever going to get with these worse than normal humans, right? Semi-divine, just craziness. Here comes some rest. Here comes some relief. Here comes some comfort for the hearer. His name is Noah. And Noah is the first person born after the death of Adam. He's the new Adam. Now, you'll also know in the New Testament that Jesus also is known as the new Adam, the one for second chances, the one that starts things over. And so Noah, again, this isn't even a Jewish story. This predates Judaism. Noah is the ancestor of all human beings. You and I today go back to this guy, Noah. This is all of our story. All of humanity goes back to Noah in the same way they go back to Adam. And so we have this story, a very interesting story about the flood of 3000 BC in the Mesopotamian Valley. Now, I don't know if you'll see this as good news or bad news, but the news is there's more than one flood story. It's not unique to Judaism. Uh, There's also a Babylonian epic known as the Gilgamesh epic. There's also a Sumerian version of this story. So in multiple cultures around Mesopotamia, they all talk about this flood that can be dated back to 3000 BC. So the fact that there was a flood, there's really not much debate about that. Scholars know that. What it means about God is up for debate. And you'll have that choice today to to choose to believe what you believe about God. And what does it mean for a God to end the world? To wipe off everything that breathes. Except for one family. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. There was nothing good left within the first six chapters Again, this is, this is not a, a children's story. And the Lord was sorry. What was he? He was sorry. Notice that he's not angry. He's not revengeful. He's not mean-spirited. He's sorry that he had made humankind on the earth. And it grieved him, friends. His heart is broken. This is now a, 
a very difficult, hard relationship. And those of you who have children or parents or extended family, you know what this is like. When it's not going well, you've done everything you know to do, and it's just not going to happen. And you come to this point where you either have to embrace them or leave them. That it's just not going to work. And it becomes clear to you that it's not going to work. And so the Lord says, I will blot out from the earth the human beings that I've created. I'm going to start over. And that includes the animals and the creeping things, the birds there. I am sorry. I'm not angry with them. I'm just, this, this is what I've got to do. If the world's going to be a better place, this is what I've got to do. But Noah, but Noah, there was one that found favor in the sight of the Lord. And all we know about Noah, if, if you read the story, you'll notice that Noah, there's, there's no big speech by Noah. Noah simply does the right thing at the right time at the call of God. That's all we know about Noah, that he did the work of the Lord. And that God showed favor on him and his obedience. That's all we know about him. My Old Testament professor, Dr. Power, tells a story like this. That yes, the Lord was sorry and it grieved him to his heart. But then the story began. And God began to talk to Noah. And can you imagine God telling you to build a boat? You don't know what a boat is. You've never even seen rain. And there was this one man. His name was Noah. And in this case, the Lord decided to make him the one exception. So the Lord gave him instructions to build himself a large boat. And when he had completed the boat, the Lord told him that he was to enter it along with all of his family and that he was also to take along seven, not just two, but seven pairs of each kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and a pair of unclean animals, a male with its mate. And the same was also to be the case with the birds. He was to take seven pairs of each kind of bird in order to preserve them alive on the earth in the future. Because, the Lord said to Noah, In seven days' time, I'm going to make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights on the earth in order to blot off the face of the earth every living thing that I have made. Now, you may have missed this growing up. I certainly did. God is giving Noah seven days to build this thing. Seven. That's it. When he speaks to Noah, you've got seven days to build the ark. That's what the scripture tells us. And without debate, Noah says, okay. He faithfully follows the Lord's instructions in spite of their incredible nature and and in spite of his advanced years. Many scholars think he was at least 600 years old at this point. And, and no doubt the merriment laughter of his neighbors, like, what are you doing, old man? And within a week, this aged man had built the boat and had assembled all of the various kinds of animals. And then he put his family and the animals on board and said farewell, farewell to his incredulous neighbors. Up the plate they went as they were jeered and cheered as they disappeared inside. And then a chilling thing occurred. The door to the boat suddenly began to swing to without any wind. And it slammed shut. And those who were closest to it could see that the bolt on the outside of the ark slid into place slowly, although no human hand had touched it. God was up to something. The NRSV says it like this. And those that entered, Noah, his family, male and female of all flesh, they went in as God had commanded, and the Lord shut him in. Can you imagine building a boat and you can't even close the door? This is what the Lord is doing. He's like, this is my story. God's going to be the hero of this story, friends. Although it doesn't look like it yet. So let me ask you, how many days and nights were Noah and his family on the ark? And you'll say, no, 378 days. It rains for 40 days. It rains for 40 nights. But any of you who have been through a flood knows that the, the river continues to rise, doesn't it? And you've got to wait it out. Now, some of you have already been on vacation this summer, and you were in the car for a week. Try a year and 13 days. That is a long trip, friends. A long trip. 378 days, the scripture says. It doesn't say it like that. You actually have to do the math. But it's, it's there. This is how long they were. Before they could get out, it was 378 days. 
So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and every animal, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, they went out of the ark by families. Not on their own, but by families to restart the world, to hit the restart button, to reboot, to regroup, to start again. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord to say thank you. I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's some good faith. You're, you're stuck with your extended family for a hundred, you know, a year and 13 days with every animal. And it's got to be smelly in there, right? And the first thing you do is you get off and you say thank you. You build an altar. You say thank you, God. And he takes those clean animals that he had put on so carefully, every clean bird, and he offered those burnt offerings to the, to the Lord. And, and God is grateful to Noah for his response. And God's response to me is shocking, friends. It doesn't, I mean, when you look at the reasoning that God gives for what he's about to do next, it absolutely blows my mind. So when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor of this, this burnt offering, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. And then catch this as the reasoning. For the inclination of the human heart is what? Evil from youth. Are you kidding me? You, you understand what's, what's going on here? That, that the very reason he flooded the earth the first time is the very reason he's not going to flood it ever again. He says, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not cease. The world will continue on. I will not end it again by flood. I'm going to give you a bow, a, a rainbow so that you know this. And, and friends, this is what people thought in that day, that, that God's all different kinds of gods had bows and they were shooting arrows. And when you saw lightning across the sky, that was a god warring with another god or against the humans. And so when they saw a rainbow pointed skyward instead of towards the earth, they understood that to be God's grace. No longer was lightning going to come and kill them and flood them. It, it was now a bow to celebrate God's safety and God's goodness. So God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But notice this, friends. The flood has not changed the basic human character. People haven't changed. Not at all. God drowns every human living being on the planet other than the one faithful one, Noah, and it didn't make a lick of difference. Now, how do we know this? Well, the one faithful guy, Noah, of the soil, he goes and he plants a vineyard. What would you do after a year with your family and the animals? It's what you do. He drinks some wine, he becomes drunk, and he lays uncovered in his tent. So the very first thing that happens as we're restarting this new era of great mankind, Noah's drunk and naked. And he's the best guy on the planet. The very best one. And this is the best he can do. So here's the intrigue, friends. The flood affected no change in humankind. Not a bit. Not a bit. But the flood has affected an irreversible change in God. God's heart has been changed. And again, if you're a parent of a wayward child, you know what this is like. You see, the flood story emphasizes not a God who destroys, but a God who wills to save a resisting world, a world that's not easy to live with, a world that's not easy to get along with, a world that does the wrong thing at the wrong time for the wrong reasons and knows it. And God says, I'm not going to flood that because here's the reality, friends. I can't even drown that out of you but I love you. And so I've got to stay with you because I love you. 
And we enter this tortured relationship with God where God is right and God is holy and God is good and God loves and we do the wrong thing. And God is loving and kind is good. God is kind and good and merciful and we continue to say no to his offers. And God says, well, I can't destroy them because that doesn't help. And by the way, uh, if you come from a tradition that says, yeah, he's not going to flood us, but he's going to get us with fire next time. That's not what this story is about, friends. It's just not. And that's not what the scripture means by that, by the way. It means that we'll not know it when it comes because it'll be so fast. We won't even see it coming like lightning from a sky. So the good news is this, friends. God's promise was to find a new way to engage evil. If he can't drown it out of us, if he can't wipe off every human on the planet and start over, then he's got to find a new way to do it. And, and those of you who have tried to punish behavior out of your kids know that it just sometimes it just doesn't work. You, you can beat them. You can ground them. You can, I mean, you can, do, you can take away their phone, their iPad, their whatever, and they're like, <laughs> right? That's just who they are. And then you've got a choice to make. Are you going to love them anyway? Or are you done? That's the reality of the world. Now, Pastor Creighton and I will preach many and talk to you many, many times about good boundaries and healthy boundaries and non-enabling. That's not this sermon. But there is that sermon. So don't mishear me. This is focused on God and God's reality. And God's reality is that the flood wasn't going to make us any better. So what's he going to do? The cross. That's what he chose to do. But if he couldn't beat it out of us, he was going to have to love it into us. He was going to take the suffering and the pain and the brokenness of the world. And he's going to take it on himself. Because being almighty God, only he could do something so great and so merciful and so wonderful that we could be changed by his love, by his life and our life. And that's why we're here today on Pentecost, by the power of the Spirit. That God chose, chose self-limitation of no destruction. God chose that. A new way must be found, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit of the living God found in the book of Acts chapter 2, this day of Pentecost that we celebrate. Paul writes about it to the early church in Corinth. And he says this, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the very power of God, friends. In the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter, wild off the page, off the rails, cutting people's ears off, Peter has been transformed by the Spirit of God. And now he preaches this message. He says, You that are Israelites, listen to what I say. Jesus of Nazareth, the second Adam, our second chance, your only hope in the world, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, signs that God did through him among you. As you yourselves know, this man, Jesus, who you handed over to according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him. That's a hard sermon. You people crucified him, he says, and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up. This is the good news. Noah, Jesus, the Spirit, God raised him up, having freed him even from death because it was impossible for Jesus to be held in its power. And so Peter says to them, turn your life towards God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of who? Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of what? The Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you. For your children, for all who are far away. Friends, this is great news. For, say it with me, everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And that's everyone. Everyone means everyone. So, friends, this is what happens. God decided to take the suffering of the world into God's own self for the future of the world. God understands now that the destruction of people doesn't make the world a better place. It just makes it have less people on it, but not change people. 
And so the challenge for us is that God is willing. At the boat, he whispers to Noah. He whispers to everyone. Noah and his family are the only ones that respond. God is willing at the boat, at the cross, in the spirit of God at Acts chapter 2. And, and here's, here's where it gets rather pointed. And that is to take God's offer at the boat or at the cross or this morning at the altar means life. Real life for you. Life that you cannot and will not know without it. The very power of God living in you to forgive and to be free and to be joyful and to have peace, patience, kindness, joy, all of it, friends. It's before you. Take the offer. And to reject it means death in this life and the next. But it's before you. It's before you. In the same way it was before Noah, in the same way it was before the people in Jesus' day, in the same way it's before us now. It is before you, the power of the Holy Spirit. And the thing is, friends, you never know what God is going to do with your small act of obedience. You just don't know. So I want to invite Carrie Lawson up um, to share a little bit of her story. I love sharing God's stories around the community because sometimes we think, hey, it's got to be some, some big deal. or You never know what God's up to. You never know what God's going to do. And so a few weeks ago, um, Carrie was in service and we shared a story. Um, and then she was gone to see family over Memorial Day weekend. And so I want you to hear how God was talking to her and her response. And um, I hope it blesses you as it has blessed me. We all welcome Carrie. Good morning. Well, I have to say, if I would have known that Mark was going to ask me to share this story when I shared it with him, I probably would have rethought sharing that story with him. (laughs) So I find myself here today reluctant, and for many reasons. But through all of those feelings, I came to the uh, most feeling of just obedience. I kept finding myself just thinking where I need to be in that moment and when Mark asked me to share that story and obedience is what kept coming to me. This past weekend, I had the opportunity to find God in my life um, just as trying to give me a reminder. Sometimes we lose God in moments and he presents himself in ways to just kind of let us know he's still there and even though they may be small ways, um, we find ourselves in these moments to hear him. And he works in ways beyond what we can imagine. And Mark pointed out to me that only God knows what he will do with these small acts of faithfulness. And I am reminded that it is not for me to measure how God may or may not move in those moments. And a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to share a Facebook post from Acts 2 regarding the CBS clip that Mark had shared in a sermon with a homeless man that had been rescued by a lady who had overcome her disdain for the homeless population. And during this time that I shared this post, I had no idea that my high school best friend Mindy, now a district judge, was trying to prepare for a sermon for her diminishing congregation while her pastor was out of town. And this is something that she does from time to time, but this particular time, it was um, more of a challenge to her. She was not finding God's presence, and she didn't know where God was leading her um, and what he wanted her to present to the congregation um, that Sunday morning. So over Memorial Day weekend, I had traveled to my hometown, and late Saturday night, I had received a text from Mindy's mother letting me know that Mindy would be presenting the, serv- or the sermon at Edgewood United Methodist Church that next morning if I were able to attend. How she knew I was in town, I'm really not sure, but that is the moment where I became reluctant. I did not want to attend for many reasons. 
One of those is just it didn't fit my schedule. It was a very short visit that I was on, and I was going to have to make the decision if I was going to fit this in the short visit. And then I was reminded that God works in our lives, and it's not always on our time schedule. And secondly, this is the more painful reason that I um, have to admit that I was passing judgment on this congregation. I had made up this narrative in my head that there was going to be potentially 25 people max in that service that morning, and I had even gone as far as to assume that the music would lack inspiration. I predicted that that I would not find God in that moment, in that service. Not to mention it was a small town church and the women all still wear dresses and skirts, and I had neither. So after all of these reasons that I had made up in my head, I had come to the point where I thought I had bargained with God enough and convinced God that this was a no-go, that we were all good, that I could just go ahead and set this one out. But you see, God planned otherwise. I ended up taking my no-church-clothes-wearing doubtful soul to church that Sunday morning. And I was surprised, or I was a surprise to my friend. She had no idea that I was coming. Her mom didn't tell her she had invited me. And in addition to that, as that when I arrived, she wanted to let me know um, when she was so excited to see me that um, the sermon had something to do with me. So in my mind, I just thought maybe she was going to share potentially a high school story or college story like she likes to do from time to time. But instead, this is where God came in. It was a God story. I had all of these reasons as to why I would not attend this service on that Sunday morning and why I couldn't attend. And not only did I predict that there would be 25 people in attendance that morning, I was wrong. There was a total of 17 people in that service on Sunday morning, and I was reminded at that moment what great things God can do with very little. He did not ignore those 17 people and just move on and think that it wasn't good enough for him to be present in that service. He showed up big. I don't know if anyone else saw God that morning. I have no idea, but I know he showed me his majesty, and he left me humble by his grace due to my judgmental heart. You see, when Mark prepared his sermon two weeks ago, he had no idea that he would be an instrument into this 17-people congregation, and I certainly did not. Mindy was looking for God's guidance, and she found it in that Acts 2 Facebook post on a Friday night before she presented her sermon on Sunday morning. She had no idea that I would be in her audience, but was gracious to share where her guidance came from. God was not finished with that message that Mark had presented two weeks ago. There was still work to be done. And all 17 beautiful souls looked at me like I was some kind of super Christian for sharing that post. And all I could think of at that moment is thank God while I was sitting in that wooden pew, I was just thanking him that they did not have insight into my judgmental heart before I arrived that Sunday morning. You see, I didn't give God credit, and I certainly did not give that congregation credit that morning. But I am thankful, and I am reminded that God's greatness and how he is always working in ways we may never see or comprehend. I am also thankful to know that God is using Acts 2 beyond the physical walls of this building, even when we may not be aware that he is using this ministry. What a blessing it is to be reminded that the answer to reluctance is obedience. And I am humbled that God gives us small glimpses into his work. Acts 2's faithfulness is a blessing around the world in ways that we may or may not ever see. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Can you believe she was nervous? She was so nervous. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you so much. You never know what God's going to do. In Ephesians, it says very clearly that the Lord is at work and can do more than we can possibly think or imagine. He may be asking you to do something very simple like go to your home church one Sunday, show up for your friend, and watch the miracles happen around you. These small acts of obedience. I don't know what it is for you, but your action step, friends, is to say yes. What do I want you to say? Say yes. Say yes to the risk of trusting a God whose commands may seem foolish to you. Building a boat in a week, getting every animal on the boat, saying yes, Holy Spirit, guide me, lead me, forgive me. Yes, I'm going to reconcile that relationship. Yes, I'm going to reach out in Jesus' name in this way. Yes, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. And friends, the scripture is very clear. Jesus says this, whoever is faithful in a little, he will entrust with much. But we have to start with the little. We have to start with the little. If we can't be faithful with a little, we'll never even get the chance for much. We have to start with the little. Say yes to God. Whatever that is this afternoon, I beg of you to just say, God, whatever you want, give me something little to do in your name and then let me take a step and i'll trust you with the next step amen amen let's pray lord god we thank you that you are a god of miracles you are a god of heroes and that you are the true hero of every story your presence your power your grace your mercy your love that you don't want to hurt us or drown us out, but to raise us to new life in Jesus. And we thank you for that, for the cross and for the Holy Spirit that empowers and lives within us now for the very transformation of the world. And we thank you that you've taught us even how to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.